News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. got a very special program for you this evening. You might remember on the 23rd of April, just over a month ago, we had an interview on this program with Eddie Cross. Eddie uh, is a member of the opposition party in Zimbabwe, and he was singing the praises of what's happening economically in the country. Now, a lot of the news that comes out of Zimbabwe is not upbeat at all, but what Eddie had to say kind of surprised us. So we put in a request and tonight we have great pleasure in welcoming in just a moment the Finance Minister of Zimbabwe, Professor Mtuli Ngobe, who's well known in South Africa as, uh, well, before he took over, took that job as being the Dean of Wits Business School. But uh, before we go there, at Brightrock, we believe that change can unlock amazing opportunities. We've partnered with industry leaders to provide you with tips and tools to help you navigate life's big change moments. Welcome to this week's thought leadership feature made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. A warm welcome to Professor Ngobe. Do we call you um, Finance Minister or Mr. Minister or Prof? Or <laughs> how do they address you now? Honorable Minister will do. Honorable Minister. Well, there's there's a former colleague, a, a former colleague of yours is our guest co-host tonight, Pete Fulion. Pete. Yes, we did. Yeah, we worked together a very long time ago when we were both much, much younger um, at uh, what was then Investic Asset Manager, now 91. And I'm, I'm very happy to see my erstwhile colleague is doing such a good job at the moment. And the good. Fantastic to see Pitfilina again after all these years. Thank you. And, and the good job is not just what Pit says. It, uh, the reason why we asked uh, Professor Honorable, Honorable Minister uh, Ngobe to join us today was when Eddie Cross was on this program, and I'm going to quote, he says that the reason for the astonishing economic progress in Zimbabwe, and he gave us a whole lot of facts and figures, which I'm sure uh, the prof will give us later as well, is, quote, our president, Zimbabwe's president, appointed an eminent economist as the Minister of Finance, uh, a man without any political roots. Honorable Minister, uh, you are now part of the cabinet. Have you been able to retain that uh, neutrality? Oh, 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 yes, indeed. The, the, the process of turning around the economy requires clarity uh, and, and resolution. One has to be resolute uh, in terms of uh, um, uh, you know, enacting policies. I maintain that. That's what is really required is to stay the course and, and walk the talk. But also I've received enormous political support, this political will, uh, first of all from the president uh, and then the party that is ruling party. So that is also needed when operate in that environment. So, but but being clear, uh, being being resolute, and, and walking the talk uh, and being uh, steady as, as it goes uh, is the way is the attitude that you need to adopt in, to do this kind of job. So, not being a member of a political party has uh, counted in your favour in this regard. No, no, I'm actually I am a, a member of ZANU PF. Uh, that, that that's okay, but really it's about uh, staying the course in terms of. The, the tough choices that we had to make, uh, even brave choices, in fact, 
uh, in terms of policy making and then uh, sticking to, to one's guns in, in, in doing that because we understood what needed to be achieved. We need strong economic growth, we need the economy to recover, we need a more normal economy. We need to interact with the rest of the world and improve our engagement with the, with the rest of the world. The thing that is very interesting for South Africans who are used to seeing um, politicians running the finance portfolio. We've had uh, Pravin Gordon, for instance, who's a pharmacist. Uh, then there was a minister of suits uh, who took over uh, or best known for the number of suits that he has, but not any academic qualifications. And most recently, Tita Mbuweni, who's who comes from business, uh, but he's not really that highly qualified academically. You, sir, have a PhD in mathematics from Cambridge University. Now, it doesn't get any bigger than that. And previously, you were chief economist and, and vice president at the African Development Bank. So if you look at it from that perspective, and of course, dean of Fitz Business School, you had... Uh, you, you've got a big life outside of politics. What, what urged you or what stirred you to go back home to Zimbabwe and to take on what for many people would have believed as an impossible challenge? Well, first of all, it was an honor to be requested uh, uh, by the President of Zimbabwe, His Excellency uh, Dr. Idi Munangagwa, to, to, to the Minister of Finance in his cabinet. It's, it's an honor. Uh, one can turn down those kind of honors. And secondly, here the vision that I believed in when he, it was put before me, and I've helped uh, uh, him to craft a vision and, and uh, going forward when, when, I, when I came in. We've just completed uh, the crafting of the National Development Strategy 1. I'm saying just six months ago. <laughs> so, and that's what we're implementing right now, and that, that is his vision. He crafted a vision 2030, uh, which I, I walked into. And frankly, I've been sold in terms of his vision of moving Zimbabwe to an upper middle income status by year 2030. He, 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 he desires to see a Zimbabwe, uh, or an economy for Zimbabwe that is private sector led, and, and I believe that. And of course, I have a contribution to make in, in, in this regard. I learned a lot from being vice president and chief economist of the African Development Bank, and those skills have come in very handy because I had the opportunity to really uh, impact the whole of Africa, every type of African country. So those skills have come in very handy, but also my academic skills, analytical skills have served me well in, in, in really being able to tell the woods from the trees in terms of the analytics and then implementing the right policies. Also, my managerial skills, having had to manage people, turn around with business school, manage people at the African Development Bank, uh, and that also has helped me in terms of managing my team and steering them in the right direction. Uh, but the vision and, being, and believing in the vision was critical. In, in my accepting this job. So, so give us the vital statistics. What Eddie told us was that inflation, which uh, the whole world knows about hyperinflation in Zimbabwe, is down to 2% a month, that you're running a budget surplus, that cement sales are at multi-decade highs. What, are the, what do you have on your dashboard that you follow, and what can, how much of that can you share with us? There's so much demand for cement, uh, Alec, that cement companies cannot cope with the demand. Those figures are, are, are correct. If you look at GDP growth uh, for 2021, we're targeting 74.4% at least, in fact, we're being conservative. And, and the output from the agricultural sector uh, you know, is expected to grow by close to 40% in 2021. That's a record. We've never had this output in agriculture since 40 years ago. And I mean, I repeat, 
40 years ago. That's a major uh, recovery in, in the sector. And, and going back to companies, if you look at capacity utilization, it's now closer to 60%, uh, up from as low as 20% uh, four, four years ago. So this is a remarkable success, remarkable achievement, and it's quite pleasing indeed, and it's got to do with the policies that we've put in place, is, is those, the, that metric uh, short in terms of what ADA presented. The dashboard showed the inflation has dropped from something like uh, 836% this time last year, on a year-on-year basis, down to about 161% uh, for the month of, of May, and we expect it to dip below 100 next month. So by year end, we expect inflation to be in the teens and, and, and uh, month-on-month inflation to be firmly well below uh, uh, you know, 2% per month. So that means the things are normal. What perhaps is also needs to, needs to be emphasized is that we're so brave as a government, we introduced a new domestic currency from scratch. And we've done that in under two years with this bubble dollar circulating it is stable. And that stability is partly the reason why inflation has come down uh, so fast because uh, all the inflation in the past had to do with the volatility and weakness in that currency. So we've done a, 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 lot, a lot in two years. Uh, in fact, our reforms have been tough uh, to an extent, uh, uh, brutal, uh, and we thank the citizens of Zimbabwe for bearing with the government on these tough reforms. But the, the, the fruits of that uh, reform, tough reform journey is beginning to show so you never deviated from the idea that you needed to tough love or, or harsh medicine to get the country back on its feet and not just to have yet another plan that nobody believed. Indeed. You know, we were running a, a much tougher economic reform uh, uh, program than the IMF would ever have suggested. In fact, I recall them saying, Minister, what you're proposing is much tougher than, than what we're suggesting, and we are doing it without any support from outside. Typically, when you're doing this kind of reform agenda, you receive balance of payment support. We, we did it without that. That's why I'm saying that we have to thank people for bearing this pain. Uh, we are over that hump now, and, and really we believe in what we're doing, and the results are here to, 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 to show us. It, it was tough, tough life, as we say, but here we are, things are, are looking up. And how do the people, how have the people of Zimbabwe reacted to this? Are they proud of having come through it or uh, is there just a sense of, well, we were so far down, it, it didn't really matter? Well, well Zimbabweans are, are tough. Uh, they've been used to hardship. Um, uh, they are resilient. Uh, they are also very, very enterprising. I've been amazed at how enterprising they are and how resilient uh, they are. Uh, they still uh, go on with their lives. They respond to these shocks. They are able to take uh, the, the, the shocks uh, uh, you know, in their stride. Uh, but I still thank them for that resilience and for putting up with the reforms uh, so far. Uh, and, and here we are. Things are looking up. They're, they're looking much, much better. That target of being an upper-middle-income country by 2030 is only eight and a half years away. Are you on track we, we are on track. All we require is an average growth rate of about 5.1% in GDP per annum uh, until 2030. We will achieve that upper middle income status. 
we're already at a lower middle income status already. Uh, so we have to build to that, towards that uh, GDP, GNI uh, per capita level of about three, three and a half to, to, to four thousand uh, uh, US dollars per person per capita. We are on track for that. We, we believe it's achievable. If we look at the regional uh, uh, GNI per capita, the city of Harare is much closer to upper middle income status on average already, followed by the city of Bulawayo as a province. And then other provinces are, are also are catching up. There are some that are much lower, such as the uh, provinces in the east of the country, Manikland and other provinces. Uh, because I track uh, GDP and GNI per capita province by province, so that we know what projects we should uh, 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 promote to and intervene in order to promote income growth in that province. That then helps overall economic growth. So we're well on our way. Uh, to uh, achieving that, that that status, I'm certain of that, and we can achieve now, your former colleague, Pete Fulyun, is our guest co-host tonight. Former colleague from Investec Asset Management. It must feel like a lifetime ago for both of you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but Pete, uh, what is your pre- burning question for the Honourable Minister? Yeah, yeah I, I guess for me the key is um, over the past 40 years, I, I guess, a lot of people have voted with their feet and left Zimbabwe. I mean, it's very famous, the diaspora um, are all over the world. Um, is there any sign of those people starting return or thinking about coming back? Uh, and is it government policy to start getting them back? Because as you know, when people leave, it's normally the best and smartest that leave first. Uh, and if you can get some of those back, they might be able to help build the economy. I, I don't know. So, so I just want to hear what your thinking might be around the diaspora. Thank you, Pete, for that question on, on the diaspora. You know what? The diaspora has been very supportive to Zimbabwe. First of all, last year, 2020, we received $1 billion U.S. dollars in inflows from the diaspora. In a sense, we must thank the diaspora because that's providing with us with some limited balance of payment support, although it's targeted to their families, uh, which is wonderful. Then it's, it's like it's targeted aid, but it's foreign currency inflows nonetheless. So we must thank them for that. But as a government, we do have a diaspora uh, support or policy uh, through the Ministry of Foreign Affairs where we are reaching out to the diaspora for them to invest back in the in the country. They're already sending money to relatives, but invest more systematically in the country. We're actually working on providing incentives uh, for investment by, by, by the diaspora. Well, I have recently established, in fact, I should say government, I shouldn't say I, government has established a, a, an offshore financial center uh, in the Victoria Falls, which is purely in U.S. dollars uh, uh, to compete with uh, other financial centers around the world, such as Mauritius, uh, Abu Dhabi, Azerbaijan, and, and others. But it's an investment for, uh, in terms of a African investment for anyone who wants to use that platform. And the diaspora are being invited to also you know, use that platform for investing back in the country or wherever they, 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 they want to invest. Uh, we want to promote instruments such as diaspora bonds, we want to also raise capital as a government. We're actually in the process of, of, of placing a bond globally, and we'll approach our diaspora to invest in the country through that bond by lending money to government, because that's, that's what it is. So you're exactly right that we are targeting them. They are already you know, showing that they, they are able to support us in terms of balance payment by supporting their, their families. They are doing a lot. We want them to do more. We'll also support them and organize them accordingly. 
Prof, what about the South African companies that have been with Zim through thick and thin? And I think here about Tongart Hewlett, uh, PPC, uh, Impala Platinum, although anybody would love to have the ownership of Zimplats, the most efficient platinum mine in the world. But perhaps uh, are, are they coming to the party now as well, or are they starting to be able to get some of their returns back? Uh, I mean, the investment of South African companies has been most welcome. Uh, they've done a phenomenal job. If, if you take, for instance, Simplats, it is the largest taxpayer in the country. So I'm a very happy finance minister because of what they, they, they do here. So in terms of also foreign currency earnings, US dollar earnings, it is that is supporting uh, our balance of payment earnings. So so they've done a lot. You've mentioned PBC, uh, which is a company, uh, uh, Mimosa, uh, uh, and, and, and others. Uh, you have your pick and pay uh, in, the, in the retail uh, space. You've got the bank, Standard Bank, uh, which is basically the largest bank in, in Africa. They, they are present in Zimbabwe. Uh, they are also the largest corporate bank in the country, supporting most of our exporters uh, and the bulk of the corporate sector. So they are doing a lot. We are supporting them. They, they, are, they are really contributing uh, to, to the country. And we want them to invest some more. Recently, we entertained uh, uh, visitors again from South Africa, uh, a group of, of investors from South Africa. Uh, I did a tour in Cape Town recently meeting the portfolio managers, not the, those investing in the, in the real sector, but those investing in the Zimbabwe Stock Exchange, but also for investment on the Victoria Falls Stock Exchange. I met with them. Uh, I thought it was a, a fantastic uh, roadshow. They showed Kenny Institute. So South Africa and Zimbabwe are really joined at the hip, so to say, in terms of investment and will we'll support South African companies that, that are investing locally. You didn't mention Tonga Hewlett, and I'm mentioning it for two reasons. One, it's in the business share portfolio, so we're very interested in it as a community. But, but, but secondly, that they, they're a huge employer, and the Zimbabwe investment is, is uh, valued at nil on the balance sheet of that company. So if the uh, rebound is for real, uh, then I'm sure there'll be a lot of uh, investors who will take heart from that. So how are they doing uh, within the, the whole environment? Oh, well, I thought they were doing very well, really, as a company. Uh, uh, they are supporting the, the local communities because they run outgrowth schemes. They are contributing to the fiscus in terms of, of taxes. Uh, generally, they also then have got direct employment. They have both forward and backward linkages within the the, the industrial sector. So they, they are contributing uh, to the economy. We're very happy uh, generally with their uh, corporate uh, performance. And with the economy turning up, we expect them to do uh, even even better. So so really, uh, you know, Tom Gullet is, is, doing, is doing fantastic. Uh, and so are many other uh, companies uh, from South Africa. I think you will see the results of the we're looking up as many other companies. In fact, I was just looking at uh, some of the, the PPC, PPC performance recently. Uh, I can see that they, they never made so much money in, in the longest while, and I expect that to be a similar pattern uh, uh, you know, for Tonga, uh, for the banking sector, for the mining sector companies uh, from South Africa. It sends a very, very strong message uh, if you see the publicly reported results of companies doing well in Zimbabwe. But, Peter, I'm, I'm sure you've got to follow up. Yeah, no, I, 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 uh, key for me is that um, the Honourable Minister uh, continues down this track because it's highly encouraging to see the private sector playing such an important role in creating and stimulating 
stimulating growth in the country. So, so, so for me, the observation would just be um, to to carry on doing that, and hopefully, uh, some countries around Zimbabwe can see the success that they uh, are busy um, experiencing. And possibly the Honourable Minister can tell us whether he's engaged with other countries around Zimbabwe for them to learn about what they've done uh, to be so successful. Have there been discussions along those lines? Oh, well, we we meet as uh, Ministers of Finance in the static area. Uh, We share uh, experiences. Uh, Mine has not been to say learn from Zimbabwe, but rather let's share experiences in policymaking. Let's share experiences in response uh, to, to covid uh, we, we've been doing that, and and in fact, the in the, here in Zimbabwe, just looking at COVID, for example, uh, I believe that we've really tried our best to manage it well, and our vaccination program is going uh, rather well. Um, uh, we, we we are really on on track to uh, you know achieving that herd immunity. Of course, it takes time to get there, but we can see uh, uh, you know quite clearly where, where we are we are headed, uh, and and we share those experiences as ministers of. Finance and recently Zimbabwe underwent a peer review in terms of macroeconomic performance, which was led by by obviously SADC, but by the Malawian authorities being the, in the mainly in the driving seat of that uh, process. So we are sharing experiences uh, with Mozambique. We're doing we're doing the same uh, with Botswana and also with, uh, with with South Africa. So it's about sharing that policy experience. That's how we support each other. And what about the feedback from? countries to the north, the rich north. Uh, they've been disappointed by Zimbabwe time and again, and it's been quite a confrontational engagement. Are you making any progress yet in repairing those relationships? Oh, we, we, we are making a lot of progress, Alec. Uh, in fact, just yesterday I saw a tweet from the U.S. acting U.S. ambassador saying that it's really time that American companies looked at Zimbabwe seriously in terms of investment, we, we entertained a huge delegation from the U.S. Uh, led by uh, uh, former General, retired General Clark, uh, who is a big player now in the private uh, sector space in, in the U.S., particularly private equity. Um, and so, so the, if the U.S. is saying that, that, that it tells you a lot. We have been having investment engagements with the U.K. companies. I did that about two months ago with the French companies as well. And next week, I'm having a conversation with the Swiss companies. I had another conversation last week with, again, with a group of uh, U.S. companies, about 50. So there's a lot of interest in terms of investment in Zimbabwe right now. They, too, wouldn't want to be left behind. The Chinese companies have been very active in, in, in Zimbabwe, and, and we've welcomed them. The Indian companies the same. But really, we're, we're open for business and open for, for, for the whole world. Uh, we have lots of opportunities right across. We're looking at agriculture, mining, uh, retail, manufacturing, wherever you look, there's space for, for investment uh, by, by foreigners. When you say open for business, just clarify that. Are your tax uh, rates, for instance, attractive to foreign investors? The ownership, there was a very strong uh, naturalization or, or local ownership uh, regulations under uh, President Mugabe. Has that changed? Yes, that has changed. We have basically expunged the, the law that forces foreigners to, to basically sell their, their 51% of their equity to local investors. That has been removed right across the board. A foreigner can own up to 100% of their company. Secondly, uh, when they operate in a in a economic, special economic zone or offshore financial center, there are no exchange controls. 
in terms at all in terms of the them taking out their profits. But even if they invest normally, not through that structure, you're allowed to remit 100% or whatever you add in terms of, of, of dividends. Wherever there have been challenges, really, in that space has got to do with just the availability of U.S. dollars, but not because you're not allowed to take out your, 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 your money. So there's so many incentives for, for investors. Looking at tax incentives, um, if you invest in, a, in an offshore zone or export processing zone, uh, your corporate tax in the first five years, uh, there, there's a, a full rebate on that. After that, your corporate tax really drops to uh, about uh, 15%. And, and if a foreign investor, if any investor, once your export uh, revenues or volumes, if I should say volumes, uh, export exceed 51% of your total, your corporate tax drops from 24.5% down to, to, to 15%. For anyone importing new equipment and, and for any sector, again, there's a, a full tax rebate on that. You don't pay any uh, customs duties. So we have so many incentives right across uh, our, our, all, all our sectors and, and more so for foreign investors or those who invest through uh, uh, you know, um, uh, economic zones or offshore financial centers. Before you took this job in uh, three years ago, how much work did you do on crafting this economic recovery plan, which, as you now sharing with us, is is showing a lot of uh, progress. Uh, because when Eddie Cross again spoke to us, he said it was only five days after you got into office that you were able to put on the table your transition stabilization plan. Now, uh, that that is some kind of a record for anyone in politics. Absolutely. I work pretty fast to, to with my team in Treasurer, I must thank them, uh, that uh, I was really able to put together a, a, a document, a blueprint to, to really create stability in our economy, transform it all within a period of two years, and, and it, it was done. We worked pretty fast, but we're focused. I remember launching it on the 4th of October 2018 here in Harare. And then on the fifth, literally the following day, I then also presented it in London at a Financial Times FT conference. Then I flew to, to Indonesia, to Bali, to present it at the World Bank IMF annual, annual meetings. Also, all within a period of four days, I was able to push it across the world and say, this is our roadmap, this is what we'll do, we'll walk the talk on it, and that's exactly what we've done. But also, uh, Alec, I've got a lot of experience in sort of designing uh, blueprints for a typical African country. When I was at the African Development Bank, I laid the strategy for the development of the strategy for the African Development Bank, which basically is a strategy about Africa. But, but also prior to that, I had contributed enormously to the vision uh, 2063 at the AU, the vision for the whole of Africa. Uh, contributing to the pillars for that strategy, and then later for the African Development Bank. And then you will find that for the Zimbabwe blueprint, especially the latest one, the National Development Strategy, the pillars for the strategy are not too far different from from that experience at the African Development Bank, that we're focusing on macroeconomic stability, focusing on infrastructure investment, making sure that we can support value chain uh, development or domesticating uh, value chains supporting the small to medium scale enterprises, a better management of our natural resources and, and value addition in the mining sector, improving our relations with the rest of the world. All those things are, are, are really, if you look at them, they are envisioned 2063 for Africa or in some of the 
the some aspects of the African Development Bank strategy for Africa, which is the ten-year strategy that I, I, I helped lead when I was there. So, so, so some experience helps. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, Prof, you spent a lot of time in South Africa. When you look south, yes, what are you seeing today? Oh, oh, South Africa is a, is a huge economy. It's a sister or brother economy nearby. So I, I tend to watch what South Africa is doing. Uh, obviously, we, we, it's, it's a big market for Zimbabwe. It's a big source of, of, of uh, both hard and, 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 and national uh, capital uh, in terms of equipment. So those relations are critical. So we, we have a stake in how South Africa is, is doing. Uh, so we, we wish South Africa well in terms of uh, economic policy and, and the impact and just working through the COVID-19 um, uh, pandemic uh, uh, shock. We, are, we, are, we wish South Africa well here, uh, but it's a, it's a big market and we really work closely with South Africa. Uh, we are joined at the, at, at the hip. Uh, I think South Africa, like the rest of the world, is poised for for, for, for recovery, uh, uh, but of course I, I cannot be specific about numbers. I'll leave that to my colleague Tito Mboweni to to to, uh, to to focus or in, indeed some of the investment portfolio managers are just pit for you to to give their their views. But uh, but we wish Africa well because we're joined at, at the hip. I think they are also poised for that uh, recovery, like the rest of the world uh, out of the pandemic. Pete, last question from your side. Yeah, I just want to know where can I get a visa to come visit and do some re- investment research. Oh, uh, we, we we can support you to get a visa. Uh, we've got our embassy in uh, in Pretoria, but also we've got the consulate downtown in Joblek. Uh, uh, Peter, I'm assuming that you're still spending a bit of time in Cape Town. There's also our consulate in, in Cape Town as well. So, yeah. so you should be able to, to get a visa uh, uh, quickly. If we need to write you a letter of invitation to make it easier, <laughs> better, don't do that. But, but, but in fact, you don't need a, a visa to come yeah. to Zimbabwe. You will get a, a, a visa as you, as you come into uh, the border. But uh, nice. most welcome. So that's one 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 way we can one way that we uh, we can show our green mambas and actually get uh, a benefit yeah. from it. That's right. Yeah. No, I, I definitely think, uh, given the work the Honourable Minister and his team have done in Zimbabwe, a, a, a research trip to Zimbabwe is definitely on the cards for us. Pete thank you. It's wonderful to hear that, Peter. Uh, thank you, thank you, Pete uh, And we'll be talking a little more with uh, Pete Fulion into the second half of the show. And to the Honourable Minister Mtuli Ngobe, Minister of Finance of Zimbabwe, it's been a, a real pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. We look forward to an update, uh, Prof. Maybe, maybe in a year's time, and and uh, look back at the scorecard Indeed. with even more success. Uh, absolutely. Thank you very much. Hopefully we can do an investment conference soon uh, with yourself, Alec, leading it on the media front uh, in Joabek or somewhere in Cape Town. Uh, well, why not? So I hope to see you soon to give, to give an update. Thank you very much. Uh, it was such a pleasure to be talking with uh, the prof in a role now of running a country that is or running the economy of a country that needs enormous uh, uh, rebound or has enormous rebound potential. And it's uh, also nice to hear that someone is as rational and as, uh, well, uh, uh, I suppose, I won't call you skeptical or cynical, but maybe skeptical, Pitt, uh, that, that you're quite excited about the, the story. But then you know, you know, uh, Prof. Ngrubek, uh, having worked with him, you know what kind of a, a person you're dealing with here. Yes.
Very much so. Um, he was always a star at Investec Asset Management in the old days, and, and he continues to be one. And, uh, you know, I've heard this Bobby story from different sources. So, you know, it's it's not just a politician talking his book. It, it is actually happening there. Pete Fulion is with CounterPoint. Uh, we are at the top of the hour. That means time for our news bulletin and, uh, and the investment update. Let's start off with our editor-at-large, Jackie Cameron. South Africa's rising coronavirus infections, which jumped by 33% on Wednesday, puts pressure on President Cyril Ramaphosa to reintroduce stricter lockdown measures, reports Bloomberg. The country has been slow off the mark to administer vaccines, with the latest health department data showing that about 762,000 people out of a population of almost 60 million have received the shots. The majority of cases are in the three most populous provinces. South Africa is planning to scrap electronic road tolls in the nation's main commercial hub, Gauteng. This is according to a member of the Executive Council for Transport, Jacob Mamabolo. The state-owned South African National Roads Agency has faced resistance to e-tolls from motorists since their inception in 2013. Sonral's debt to the Gauteng Freeway Improvement Project may increase by two-thirds to about 67 billion rand if the tolls are cancelled. The South African Post Office is in the process of permanently closing 130 branches across the country. This comes after the Post Office was declared commercially insolvent, with its 2019-2020 financial results showing it had incurred losses of more than 1.7 billion rand, while its liabilities exceeded assets by 1.5 billion rand. Earthquakes following a volcanic eruption in Goma, a city near Congo's border with Rwanda, are disrupting exports of tin concentrate from mineral-rich North Kivu province. The disruption to Congolese tin exports, which account for 8% of the world's tin in concentrate, is likely to exacerbate shortages of the soldering metal. Prices last week touched 10-year highs at $30,650 a tonne. Facebook has ended its ban on posts, asserting that COVID-19 was man-made or manufactured. Facebook said in a statement, in light of ongoing investigations into the origin of COVID-19 and in consultation with public health experts, we will no longer remove the claim that COVID-19 is man-made. And that was your Biz News Flash Briefing. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. For more on those and the other big stories of the day, visit biznewsradio.com. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Thank you, Jackie. Well, what an interesting news uh, bulletin we had there, not least the story about Facebook. We're going to be talking to Nick Hudson, uh, who has himself been uh, subjected to some pretty stringent censorism. Uh, he is, of course, the co-founder of Panda. We'll be talking with him in just a little while. First up, though, let's uh, get to our market report. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity, and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Thank you, Dudu. And my colleague, Nadia Swart, uh, or Nadia Swart, is uh, standing by <laughs> with the uh, market report for the day. Nadia? All right. So the JC Orcher Index was flat today at 66,940. Mr. Price was up by 11.7% to 220 rand per share. Pipco was up by 9% to 19 rand 39 rand per share. 
Discovery was down by 2.8% to 146.50 per share, and Capitec was down by 2% to 1,640 per share. In the currency markets, the rand was flat against all the major currencies to 13.79 to the dollar, 19.55 to the pound, and 16.81 to the euro. Gold is lower at $1,893 an ounce. Brent crude is steady at $69 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 549,000 rand a Bitcoin. Thanks, Nadja. Uh, let's bring Pitt in now to join the conversation. It's a, it's a retail day, Pitt. We did have results coming out of uh, Pepco. Uh, Mr. Price, that jump of 11%, Pepco itself, uh, up, I think about 9 yeah, uh, so, so it was a big day for retail, um, uh, some reports. I, mean, I think all the reports had one thing in common, and that is that the retailers are recovering quite nicely from last year's lockdown-induced slowdown. Um, and if you look at the valuation multiples across these stocks, they are not, uh, they're not in nosebleed territory by any stretch of the imagination. And I think it's just a continuation of the recovery of SA Inc., so to speak, um, Okay, yeah. Nadia, you, uh, you, I'm as confused as I hope you are. Nosebleed territory. What, <laughs> what do you think he means by that? Oh, you're definitely as confused as I am. <laughs> <laughs> go on, Pete, put us so, out our misery. So when, when, when you go to a very high altitude, sometimes uh, your nose can start bleeding because of the altitude level. So, you know, it's a market lingo, I guess, for when things get very expensive, when the valuations get elevated to very high levels, you call it nosebleed territory. Those stocks are not in nosebleed territory. In fact, they are. Many of them are at bargain basement levels. I mean, if you look at a stock like Lewis, I think that's one we spoke about that reported today. Over the past ten years, it's done. It's had the same operating performance in terms of earnings per share growth, NAV growth, dividend growth than Truist, Fushini Group. Uh, you know, any one of those, Mr. Price. Yet it's valued at a third uh, of their valuation level. So that's even cheaper. Not that Mr. Price and those stocks are expensive, but Lewis is even cheaper. So South African companies as a whole, and if you want to call it SA Inc. as a, you know, as, uh, as a hold all for South African companies, they are uh, very cheap in global terms. And I think the market is starting to recognize that and is starting to bid up for them. And they are doing very well. The on, share prices. No. Uh, on the U.S. markets today, uh, also a little bit firmer, but nothing, no, no fireworks there. Not certainly not nine and eleven percent gains. Mm. Uh, the S and P five hundred about a quarter percent higher, and the Dow about a half a percent higher. Nasdaq one fifth of a percent higher. But uh, Nadia, uh, you you heard Pitt uh, tell us all about transaction capital, or particularly the We Buy Cars transaction. And uh, Lewis Stores at the Biz News uh, Investment, the first investment conference that we had in March. Mm-hmm. We've got another one coming in August. So uh, the question to you is, did you go and buy those Lewis shares, uh, which I know our colleague Justin uh, Rowe Roberts uh, did. Uh, he followed Pete there. Uh, you know, unfortunately and quite embarrassingly, I've never bought a share in my life but I actually made the resolution yesterday that it will happen this coming week. Okay, so easy I just need to just get it done. Here we go. <laughs> sure. 100 bucks. I'm it's a bull market. Just, needed, just send it some it, money. It's a bull market. It's a bull market. Oh, there oh we you go. mean when, when, Nadia, when Nadia starts buying, it's a bull market. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or are you saying she should buy anyway? 
No, I'm not. Uh, I'm, I'm just. I'm just. Uh, I'm just making the observation that it seems like it feels. It feels like a bull market. <laughs> it feels like a bull market. Well, uh, now just what will be joining the the rest the running of the bulls uh, as well as I think next week. Our CFA writing colleague, Justin Rowe Roberts, is back in studio. So uh, he'll be, no doubt, full of vigor after the, the Lewis uh, shares. And he follows you, Pete. He follows you very closely. Uh, just before we finish off the market report, uh, th- those numbers from Transaction Capital today had a, a positive impact on the share price, which has already been yes. running hard, up another 7.5%. Yeah. Yeah, look, I, 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 we spoke about this deal with uh, with We Buy Cars. They bought half or just under half, uh, what was it, about six months ago, nine months ago. They're buying another quarter now. Uh, you know, they're not buying an expensive val- valuation. Uh, it's a good business. They've obviously got to know management. Uh, management got to know them. They've obviously identified synergies in different and more areas to make money. Uh, so it just looks like a well-structured transaction. Um and I think uh, it will uh, it will be good for the business. So all around, it, it's a good it's a good transaction. And I have characterized it before as a win win. Again, um, the management of WeBuy Cars still own twenty five percent of the business. To the extent transaction capital can help them grow faster because they now control the business, they will still benefit. So so it is a win win transaction. Now, Joe, before you go, I know you've been talking to uh, the owner or the co owner of WeBuy Cars, the founder. We're going to have them on the on the show soon. On next week, yes, he's unavailable. He will be travelling tomorrow during the show, but we've confirmed him for next week, so that should be good. That's fine. Yes, is it fine? Fine de vault? Is that? I think so. Okay, yes. I think so. But yeah. it's fine. Yeah. It's fine. We name it fine, and yes. uh, and yes. fine. It's, 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 it's you know, it's a unique name. So fine will be there. Fine will be here mm. next week. Uh, probably mm. one of the richest fines in the country uh, <laughs> after what they sold We Buy Cars for. Uh, and Nadia will be back again tomorrow. Okay, Pete, uh, get on your listening boots. Uh, you don't have listening boots, but you know what I'm talking about. We've got Nick Hudson coming on in just a moment. This market report was made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. You're listening to the BizNews Power Hour brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Well, welcome, Nick. Uh, you know Pitt pretty well from the inaugural BizNews Investment Conference. Just to remind people that both Nick and Pitt are coming back to the next investment conference by popular demand. Uh, both of you will be presenting again. In uh, It's the 1st of September, starts end August and goes into September. That's our spring conference. If you want to know more details, you can go on to the right-hand side of the BizNews homepage. We were told this week that we can push up to 250 delegates. So we've got to the first 100. We'll now start uh, telling people a little more. It's still a few months to go. But uh, if you want to be absolutely certain of getting your seat, I'd suggest you book as soon as possible. Uh, Nick, you are a private equity guy. I know we know you're an actuary. We know that you're Mr. Panda or co, co uh, founder of Panda and you've got very involved in COVID 19. But actually, on your, your day job is private equity. This deal that We Buy Cars or the transaction capital has done with We Buy Cars, have you, have you had a look at it at all from your side? Because it's a kind of private equity transaction, isn't it? 
No, I haven't. Uh, we tend to stay very focused on the businesses that we're looking at and try not to get too confused by the madness that goes on in the markets. Talk about madness. Uh, what's going on with, uh, with when you started to get involved? Maybe you should recap a little. Why, why did you even begin Panda? What was the whole idea uh, going into something which must have sucked a lot of your time, a lot of your energy? Um, opportunity cost financially must be considerable. Uh, looking at it now, was it a smart idea to do it in the first place? Well, I must say it's been a very stimulating year. I didn't, uh, I didn't at the time expect that it would take this kind of trajectory. But to, to answer your first question of why, it was very much the same reason. We were alarmed at the madness that was going on in the media and noticing an enormous gap between the actual data that was emerging early. You know, I'm talking now uh, March of last year. And what the media was saying, you know, the media was seeing an Ebola, we were seeing a severe seasonal flu. And um, that alarmism rolled into these draconian lockdowns, which have been completely ineffective, uh, hugely costly, enormous amounts of collateral damage, and all sorts of malarkey, as I like to call it, the, the ridiculous concept of cloth mask wearing, um, the idea that this virus was something novel to which we were all susceptible and that nobody was immune and that, you know, unless we locked down and wore our masks, we were all going to die. And we had to lock down and wear our masks until the vac vaccine arrived. And we thought that all of this was, was nonsense and that uh, a fairly small manageable problem that would have been adequately addressed with the existing pandemic guidelines was uh, turned into an enormous problem when those guidelines were thrown out in the space of about two weeks. But you've and really... The world went mad. Yeah, you've really attracted a lot of uh, criticism, a lot of, lot of hate on social media. Why do you think that's the case? Well, it's, it's an amazingly uh, polarised world that we, we started with a year ago, before this arrived. And then what happened is there was a concerted effort to drive fear um, by public health officials. And we're now, I mean, this, the last three weeks have been absolutely, absolutely sensational. I'm feeling very chipper at the moment because I can see this narrative coming apart very rapidly. It's unraveling at a rate. And one of the things that was not reported in, in widely in the news in South Africa was that um, advisors, behavioral scientists uh, to the SAGE organization in the UK, that's the uh, sort of corollary of, uh, of our MAC in South Africa, came out saying that they thought that the methods that had been adopted by SAGE to deliberately manipulate the population and drive a narrative of fear were unethical. Wow. A spectacular story. So they and, are criticizing know, themselves. Picked up in the media. They're, criticizing, they're criticizing themselves, in fact. Yes. They've stepped out of the organization and criticized what the organization has been doing. And so now we have, you know, not, I, would, I wouldn't say the first proof because there's plenty of proof that this has been going on. You know, there are behavioral scientists all over the place. We've got them on our Mac. Um, in Germany, a document was leaked where they were actually talking about what they needed to do to undermine the cognitive um, faculties of the population in order to get them to adopt more a more fearful position. So, you know, we've had evidence of this for a long time, but this was now an admission from within that couldn't be ignored and was indeed 
picked up in, in mainstream media in the UK, but not repeated in the rest of the world, which I find quite disturbing. Well, something that has finally made its way through and was originally dismissed as, fun, uh, as fantasy by Donald Trump is that the disease, the, the virus, might not have come from a wet market in Wuhan. And in fact, the evidence is now building uh, that it was leaked from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Uh, there's, there's a lot of work that has been done on this by the Wall Street Journal. And to the degree that President Joe Biden, who initially fired the, the unit that was investigating it uh, on, uh, on, on the behest of, of the former president, has now established his own investigation uh, into exactly this to find out. Uh, there's a lot of this kind of revisionist that's, that's coming through now, Nick. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we, we felt for a long time that there was a fairly high probability that there was a, a, a lab origin, um, but decided to stay away from the topic. We were going after the, the hard issue of lockdown, which we thought was basically a crime against humanity, and we wanted to see that ended. So, you know, the origin um, was irrelevant in terms of the policy response, so we stayed away from it. But we've had a, a, a amongst the scientists inside Panda, this has been a hotly debated topic. And so we are very familiar with the features of the virus that would lead uh, people to consider a lab origin and have found it very alarming the extent to which any suggestion that a lab origin was possible was censored on social media. And so what's happened now is that Facebook has come out and said they will no longer remove posts that suggest the lab origin. And this is amazing. I, I, I appeared on your show a couple of weeks ago to discuss the, rem the removal of the business video, The Ugly Truth About the COVID-19 Lockdowns, um, which at that stage had received half a million views in just a few days. Um, and I said to you that, you know, those half a million viewers, not one of them raised any factual objections to what, you know, was in the presentation. And I said to you, this is the pattern of it. Uh, they sense the things that are true. There's this crazy junior academic called Eric Fagel-Ding, who for the last year has spouted absolute drivel from morning till night, everything wrong on Twitter. And he has never been censored or chastised. So, you know, just false material all the time, never censored. But mm. it's the guys who get removed that you have to look at very carefully. What were they saying that got everybody so upset? And indeed, the people who were raising the question of lab origin were rapidly deplatformed from across the board, you know, numerous uh, social media um, sites. Um, so we've been aware of the, the features of the, the virus itself that would suggest a lab origin, origin and there are several of them. Well, now um, with, with Joe, Joe Biden actually coming around to that way of thinking with a prestigious uh, publication like the Wall Street Journal this week, mm -hmm. Uh, every day this week, they've had more and more evidence, more and more joining the dots, including today the editorial board having an, a very strong editorial saying exactly that. Uh, it, it then emphasizes again the dangers of censorship because what happens if you censor something like Facebook has done and you're wrong? Well, exactly. I mean, and it's, you know, it's not just the, the actual um, virological or genetic um, thinking that gives rise to this, there's an enormous amount of circumstantial evidence suggesting that uh, there was um, work done in what's called a gain-of-function um, 
project to look to consider how um, SARS could be modified. Um, now, to the to the listener, that may sound like horrific, like some, somebody's trying to design the ultimate killer virus. It's generally not that extreme what they're trying to do um, when they perform gain of function um, work. But um, this was funded. Um, after being pushed out of the United States under the Obama administration, funded by U.S. taxpayer money, um, and the funding all pointed towards the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So it's the combination of the genetic and virological um, uh, features and the circumstantial evidence, and then some very suspicious behavior as well. When the World Health Organization uh, succumbed to pressure to investigate this issue, they put together a task team, but they appointed as head of that task team the one man who everybody had been pointing at as a potential um, source of concern, a person who was involved himself in gain-of-function research. And we thought that was very strange, almost um, to, uh, an admission of two things, that they knew you know, that there was some truth to this story and that they wanted to appoint the guy who was most strongly incentivized to cover it up, which was you know, doubly strange because it was such, you know, such an obvious move from our perspective, but yet again, never never reported in the mainstream media and all suggestions of this nature or many suggestions of this nature removed from social media platforms. And here you go, Biden investigating it. Bang. Incredible. Uh, Pete, you, you do a lot of uh, analysis of behavioral uh, economics, why people do things that they do, not always the most logical way of doing them. Uh, what's your take on the way that... The, the, the narrative is unwinding, as uh, as Nick explained it. Well, I, I think it's fascinating. I, you know, in the markets, markets are, they're driven by fear and greed, and you could see this whole fear narrative being pushed hard by different sources, different places. Uh, uh, and to me, that just raised question marks. Uh, and now you can see it almost being rewound somehow, and the narrative is starting to be uh, to be retold. And these things, you know, I'm not a, you know, actuary or a virologist. I don't know much about those things, but I do know um, fear when I see it because you see that in the market very often. I know how fear-based responses work, and I know how people can manipulate other people with fear. You see that in practice, and that raises massive question marks. And then on top of that, when you start banning and censoring things, that raises even bigger question marks. Because uh, only people who ban and censor things are people who are scared of the truth. Uh, so those sort of things, to me, raise massive question marks. And uh, I have to take my hat off to Panda for being one of the very few entities or groups out there that questioned what was going on. Because um, I think that is always a useful role to play, is just to question what's going on. Uh, because there's always, there's always a different narrative as well, as, as opposed to the one that's being driven by the dominant media. What brought this on, this questioning, Nick? Uh, was it part of your of your upbringing? <laughs> Did you have parents who said uh, that you need to question everything and not accept uh, authority or, or what people necessarily tell you? Yeah, it's interesting you asked that question because I actually asked it on one of the Panda discussion boards. I was just curious as to what had caused everybody else on in the Panda membership to to get to this point of uh, asking the questions. In my case, I, I moved around a lot. I, I went to 
uh, eight different schools in the space of 10 years. And so what happens when you go through that kind of process is, is different authorities tell you different things. And straight away that makes you skeptical. <laughs> authority. So there was my particular story. But the interesting thing was all the panda members had different ways of getting there. They'd, some of them had just had run-ins with authorities who were clearly wrong. Um, and, uh, you know, suffered early on in life in, in, in that regard. So the story is different for everybody. Um, but, but Pete's absolutely right. I mean, and, and what I think we should all be doing right now is look at look very carefully at what else is being censored. I'm wondering whether YouTube are going to uh, republish your video for, from your presentation at the conference, or indeed the next at the next conference, if they'll uh, actually pull it down again. Yeah, I, I, hopefully by the next conference, a lot of this kind of draconian action has evaporated, as uh, as the rest of this weird narrative that we've been fed for the last year is destroyed. Um, so I'm hoping that by September, some uh, normality would have returned to the world. Um, I'm not, I don't have great expectations, but a little bit more would be terrific. Um, I, d- I doubt they will repost or allow, maybe they, will, they have allowed other versions of it, by the way. You know, the, the effect was they went after the one that was going viral and being viewed at the rate of 12,000 per hour when it went, when they pulled it down. Um, the other ones, you know, obviously you've now lost the social media impetus because all the links and connections are gone. And, um, People get frustrated clicking on the link and finding there's nothing there and so on. So the impetus is removed. But you never know. Maybe it will get a second life. There, there have been another half million views or so across um, now hundreds of different platforms because people pulled them down, pulled down copies for the, themselves and put them up on their own servers and websites. They went up on Odyssey and Rumbler and Vimeo and all these other services. So the, it it's continues to be viewed. But that's half a million of what, two months compared to half a million in the first four days. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting. Uh, Pitch, just a passing statement from your side on this whole, uh, what we've learned from COVID-19 and uh, what fear or what damage and destruction fear can do uh, when abused. I, I remember coming to one of your conferences years ago uh, when you brought Bob Caldini out from the United States, a, a real expert in, in understanding what it is or how we wired and, and how, how we should learn not to let people play with our wiring to, to our detriment. Yeah, uh, Persuasion, I think uh, it was his book's name. And, um, yeah, I, I, I think one, as I said earlier, the, the key is um, to recognize when a narrative is being pushed for for reasons you might not be comfortable with and to ask questions around that uh, and always to be asking questions. I think just to accept any authoritarian imposition, I think is uh, probably an acceptance of, of failure. And I think one should push back hard at any imposition by authoritarians. Uh, and, and that's just a general rule of life um, because uh, we've seen it. I mean, I grew up in South Africa at that time. Things were being censored and banned in the 70s and 80s because they were the truth. And the government of the day was uncomfortable with the truth. Uh, so that's how I grew up. Uh, and I continue to, to tell that line of pushing back against, um, against narratives, which are clearly, clearly, you know, I, I guess if, when you read something, just ask, why am I reading this now? 
that's a simple question. Just think about that. Why am I reading this now? Or why am I seeing this now? I think it's just a sensible thing to, to apply to, to life in general. Do you think uh, from your messages, Nick, uh, there will be some more people who will be following that kind of approach in future? I would hope so. I think Pitt's entirely correct. Um, uh, we, you have to resist authoritarianism in, in all its forms. That's a lesson of history. But there's another thing we have to resist, and that's centralization. And what's happened in this world is that there's too much power accruing at the top of some incredibly large hierarchies, and that power is inevitably abused. So I, I think the two things go hand in hand, centralization and authoritarianism. Both need to be resisted, and, and I believe if they will in they will come down hard. That's my hope and my expectation, and that we will see an enormous amount of reconfiguration of our institutions, not only of public health, but um, political in many ways as well. I would expect to see that there will be reputations absolutely slaughtered in this process as, as the levels of corruption and dishonesty are gradually exposed. And the biggest of those, the one that's going to make people really angry, is that if you think that the gain of function and lab origin narratives were suppressed, you should see the levels of suppression that attached to the treatments. Um, you know, this, there was this kind of ideological, almost religious belief that treatments, no treatments existed. And this was actually far from the case. You know, this, there's nothing spectacularly different about co the coronavirus and the illness that it causes that, that we should suddenly throw up our hands and say it can't be treated and wait for people to arrive in hospital and stick them on ventilators that kill them. You know, that's, that's an aberration in public health. And I think that's the saddest of them all is that the, it's not just the message that there are treatments that were suppressed. Now even the view that there was suppression of information about treatments is being censored. Well, we've seen a lot of that good work done in South Africa by some of our medical uh, healthcare professionals here. And uh, wonderful to have Nick Hudson giving us his views. There's a terrific story that uh, Nick and Peter Castleden from Panda have written about contact sports amongst youngsters. Go on to Business and go and have a read of it. It's, uh, it'll open your eyes. But this is it for uh, our night tonight. I hope you enjoyed our special guests, uh, both uh, prof uh, Professor Mtuli Nkube, uh, the Finance Minister of Zimbabwe, and Nick Hudson from Panda. And, of course, as always on a Thursday, our guest co-host, Pit Fulion, from our team here at Biz News. Until tomorrow at the same time, cheerio. You've been listening to The Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.